Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm live programs in LA, check out The Art of Charm toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating attraction, business networking, negotiation, relationship management, breakups, etc., all the stuff we'd wish we had learned and mastered years ago. And we have our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or give us a call here in the office, or even just email me, jordan at theartofcharm. I do read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here in LA. Today we've got a little bit of a graphically honest episode, maybe not one for when the kids are in the car. We're talking with Dr. Ian Kerner, author of She Comes First. We're gonna discuss the importance of sexual clitoracy. I see what he did there. Men do not have an accurate view of female sexuality. We're gonna remedy some of that today. We're gonna talk about when porn becomes a problem, what to do about it, the science of female sexuality, the latest stuff, not the stuff from 1950, mechanical male functions, such as premature ejaculation and how to fix that, or at least start fixing it, something called the sex pyramid, which isn't what I thought it was originally, and solutions to common sex problems. So enjoy this one with Dr. Ian Kerner. So you're a nationally recognized sex and relationship expert. You've got a New York Times bestselling, well, several bestselling books. The catchiest title, She Comes First. I love that. And of course, you've been around for a while as well, right? So you've seen a lot of these like faux sex experts come and go. You've been on a lot of popular media. So tell us a little bit about why this is important. I mean, sex doesn't really need a definition or, or too much selling, I would imagine. But uh, tell us what you're going to talk about here. Tell us what you're going to teach us. Well, uh, first of all, I appreciate being called a, a relationship expert. My wife may uh, disagree with you at times. Uh, right. She's not on the show, so we're not worried about her opinion right now. Yeah, not <laughs> always an expert in my own relationship, but I've been working as a sex therapist and as a marriage and family therapist for, for a long time. And, you know, I just think that sex is a, uh, it's a crucial aspect of a relationship. I think Two people can often be lying in bed and feeling like they're a million miles apart. So I sort of work on the sexual connection. It's, it's often the part that uh, couples don't talk about. Sometimes they feel like sex should just happen automatically. Um, and there's no common vocabulary for talking about sex, for 
sharing what's on your mind. So I, I feel like I'm kind of within relationship, sort of working on that final domain where to where a couple often goes, but uh, isn't often communicating. Excellent. So yeah, I mean, what do men need to know about sexuality specifically? Because guys, we think we know everything about this shit already. That's the problem, right? Yeah. So let's talk about it. I mean, you know, there are some uh, fundamental differences between male and female sexuality. And, you know, if, if you go back to even the 60s and you look at the work of Masters and Johnson and their development of a sexual response model, they kind of laid out stages of sexuality and they saw those stages as applying to men and women. And I think we've often lived in a culture where we try and treat male and female sexuality uh, equally. And uh, if you even think back to, I think it was the first episode of Sex in the City, Carrie says, in an age where women enjoy the same money as men, the same education as men, the same successes as men, why can't women enjoy sex like men? Sex for the sake of sex, orgasm for the sake of orgasm. But you know, some of the latest science around sexuality really proves that male and female sexuality is quite different. For example, men experience spontaneous desire. A guy doesn't have to think much about sex to want to have it. Uh, a guy can take Viagra and feel aroused and want to have sex. Viagra is a billion-dollar industry, but the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has never uh, invented female Viagra. Not yet. Yeah, not yet, and they're trying, and uh, they're not close to succeeding. Um, so male sexuality operates along spontaneous desire. Women operate um, from a perspective of responsive desire. That means that women respond to context. They'll respond to multiple sexual cues as opposed to a single sexual cue. A lot of guys complain, why am I always the one that's initiating? Why doesn't my partner initiate? Well, in a large sense, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of responsive desire, women just don't initiate as much. They respond. Um, another big thing is that when you look at the female brain versus the male brain during, say, an fMRI scan. Okay, functional MRI, right, brain yes, scan. Yes, you put a, put a man on a brain scanning uh, machine, you put a woman in, and you ask them to arouse themselves, and you say, what is happening differently in the female brain than the male brain? Well, the more a guy gets aroused, the more the male brain completely lights up. It's like a fireworks festival. Okay. For the female brain, the more a woman gets aroused, the more certain parts of the brain actually start to go dim and deactivate. Really? Yeah, and those are the parts of the brain that are associated with uh, stress, anxiety, high emotion. So here's something I know from, from just like teaching a lot of social dynamics and of course a lot of dating skills that overlap. One of the things I don't mention on a lot of shows, just because it's super non-PC to the point of possibly looking really sketchy, is one thing I've noticed through experience and just through experimentation, we'll say, is that a lot of times a woman's logical faculties will, inhibitions will also shut down or at least seemingly go by the wayside with enough arousal. Is that something that's happening in the brain or is that a natural phenomenon just like guys where we're like, screw it, I wanna have sex now and we throw caution to the wind? Or is this actually a brain function where given enough arousal, the logical sort of I shouldn't be doing this tends to just melt away. Is that a brain function? Well, I think what you're talking about, interestingly, um, are functions that happen in the prefrontal cortex. And so I think, you know, consistent with what we're talking about, 
really for a woman to turn on, parts of her brain need to turn off. And so for a woman to completely relax into sex and to enjoy sex, parts of her brain have to deactivate. And so the guy who did this study, who put the men and women in these uh, fMRI scans, basically said that women kind of during sex go into a almost trance-like state. You know, I think for a guy thinking about how to really turn a woman on, you also want to ask, well, what's going to help sort of turn off these parts of the brain? How can I create an environment that's really relaxing, that's really secure, that's really safe, that's free of distraction? How can I have a sexual experience that's fun and exciting, but in which a woman isn't worried about how she's performing or what she's doing? How do you have sex where there is novelty but not too much novelty. And how do you create sex scripts that a woman can really enjoy and relax consistently, but also layer in a degree of excitement and novelty? So that is sort of one of the things that I think men really need to think about. Yes, of course. I'm definitely on board with that. I was kind of looking at it from the reverse angle where it's like it, when you can really get somebody in or aroused state yeah. in a seduction type of scenario a lot of those faculties just seem to just turn off completely. And it's like, I mean, there, there are stories I, I can share where it's just like, I'm just going to leave this bar with this person that I just met and her friends are still there. And you're just kind of thinking, how did this happen? Not that I'm complaining. You know, there's a lot of stuff and, and normally responsible people will do that. And it's, it's just like they're a completely different person in that moment. Well, well, you know, the anthropologist Helen Fisher also did a lot of measurement of uh, and, and observation of the female sexual brain and the male sexual brain. And she basically divides sort of the mating system into three different brain systems, the lust system, the romantic love system, and the attachment system. And when you're in the lust system, whether you're a man or a woman, you're basically just scanning for sexual opportunity. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, Women get horny, men get horny, and you're likely to, like, leave a bar and go have, you know, wild, crazy sex. Now, of course, most studies also prove that the first few times a woman has sex with a guy, she's not actually likely to orgasm. So uh, many women actually do end up either faking it on the first date, being honest about what works and what doesn't work. Um, but basically... If you're not romantically in love with somebody and you're hoping to be, your brain is really the dominant part of your brain that's working is really the lust system. Once you fall in love, it's the romantic love system and the romantic love system operates differently and there are different neurochemicals involved. Excellent. Okay. Well, we definitely want to get into some of that as well. Um, why did you write the book in the first place? I mean, you talk about the concept of sexual cliteracy, which is, I see what you did there. Yeah. And why did you write the book in the first place? You know, absolutely. I wrote She Comes First. In over 12 years, it's remained my best-selling book over the last decade. And, you know, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. First of all, as a sex therapist, the number one question women were coming to me with was, you know, what can I do to have an orgasm during sex? You know, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not having orgasms? And I spent a lot of time doing a lot of psychoed, basically explaining to women and to their partners that they weren't necessarily doing anything wrong, but the sexual positions that they were largely engaging in were not really providing the consistent, persistent clitoral stimulation that a woman requires in order to experience arousal and orgasm. And so, yeah, I kind of came up with this funny idea that many men, 
certainly not the ones that listen to your podcast, kind of illiterate. They know more about what's under the hood of a car than the hood of a clitoris. And so I wanted to give guys an education, an honest education in female sexuality and sexual function and how female sexuality actually operates. The other reason I wrote She Comes First was because for uh, all the years before I was a sex therapist, I was a guy who was trying to figure out sexuality. I actually suffered from premature ejaculation, which is the number one sexual dysfunction that affects men of all ages. Prevalence rates of premature ejaculation eclipse those of erectile disorder. And I felt for most of my life and for most of my early sexual experiences, I felt like a sexual cripple, especially during intercourse. You know, back then there wasn't the internet and there weren't a lot of men's magazines. And so I felt really alone and isolated. And gradually through my own reading, through my own research, through my own work, through eventually becoming a marriage and family therapist and a sex therapist, I really learned the importance of A, developing alternative sex scripts to intercourse, figuring out ways of having sex that didn't always involve just intercourse, but sort of were intercourse plus, intercourse plus something else. 80% of women statistically do not orgasm from intercourse alone. However, 80% of women do orgasm when it's intercourse plus some other form of stimulation, namely oral sex or manual stimulation. Definitely understand that. And it's interesting because I think a lot more guys nowadays suffering from sort of dysfunctions caused by a lot of things. And some people hypothesize that even porn is causing weird dysfunctions in guys that are so young they shouldn't be having these problems at all for 30 years. Yeah, you're, you're raising a really important point. You know, when I started out in the field of sex therapy, in terms of mechanical male sexual dysfunctions, erectile disorder and premature ejaculation were the two top disorders. Um, and delayed ejaculation was actually quite rare. Now in my practice, I'm seeing way more cases of delayed ejaculation and in way younger men, men who can't reach orgasm or men who are experiencing soft erections or erectile impairment. And some of the studies are showing that it really has a lot to do with pornography. I actually coined a term, I wrote in an article and it created some controversy and really just a term called sexual attention deficit disorder. And I applied that to uh, pornography to describe men who I'm seeing in my practice who they have a few problems related to porn. A, they're masturbating maybe 500% more than they would normally simply because they have the access to porn. So as a result, especially for some of the older guys, their libido has dropped significantly when it comes to having sex with their partners. So they're mainly having their orgasms as porn-based orgasms. Secondly, when a guy masturbates frequently, he's really applying a kind of pressure and friction with his hand that's not easily replicated during intercourse. So he develops what's clinically called an idiosyncratic masturbatory style. And um, that's one of the main things, yeah. That's a fancy way of saying you whack off weird and you can't get it from a normal <laughs> female body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not even that you're whacking off so weirdly. It's just that your hand, you know, provides a kind of pressure and friction that's really not easily replicated during a penis-vagina intercourse. Right. And then the third thing that's happening to a lot of men is simply 
that they're unable to focus on the sex that they're having and they're extremely distracted and they're finding they need to think about porn images. And I'm actually porn positive. I think that porn plays uh, an important role in sexuality and self-pleasure. It can be great for couples. Many men I know tell me that being having access to porn has stopped them from cheating. Many women are enjoying porn. So I'm actually quite porn positive, but that doesn't mean that there aren't problems or problematic behaviors. Yeah, we had a guy on whose name just escapes me right now, but he runs a whole website, basically. It's Your Brain on Porn. What is his name? Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about, and he, yeah. has, he has some good research and some uh, good data, but I believe, I don't want to uh, speak for him, but is really looking at porn as, as a major problem, especially for younger people, and really talks about how porn alters the brain and kind of creates a kind of compulsion and addiction. And yes. I, I'm really on the other end of the spectrum where I, I'm very porn positive, but I think that it can be problematic for individuals and in relationships. So I actually did an interesting study. I had about 25 men who all came to me around the same time, all different ages, in different relationships. Some were single, some were married, some were dating, but they all felt that they had different types of problems associated with porn and masturbation. And I gave them a very simple assignment. I said, okay, for the next month, I don't want you to stop masturbating, but I just want you to stop masturbating to internet pornography. So that was the only thing I asked them. And the results were, you know, really interesting. Now, first of all, some of the younger guys had never had a non-porn-based orgasm. Now, for me, a guy in my 40s who grew up sort of before the age of internet porn, that is surprising to meet somebody who has never had a non-internet porn-based masturbatory experience. Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking to a kid who, like, I was a finagler, a hustler, even at age 13, and I managed to get some crappy, like, crumpled up Playboy that, like, my friend's dad had been using to prop up a table since <laughs> 1973 yeah. or something in the yeah. garage. And I, we were like, this is gold. You know, it's all, like, stained with water. Yeah, I'd let your imagination run wild there. But, like, rainwater had, like, a hole in it from a table leg. You know, yeah. we still had to use our imagination, and we even had that. And then, of course, you know, fast forward 10 years, and it's like, click, click porn. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, I, I have an 11-year-old son and an 8-year-old son, and I'm sure I wonder when they start masturbating, will, will it only be exclusively to internet porn? I'll tell you the answer to that right now is yes. <laughs> All right, well... I mean, you can fix that if anyone can, but... <laughs> Maybe I can. So, so it's interesting. Some guys never had a non-porn-based orgasm and literally didn't know how to masturbate without internet porn. I know it sounds weird, but they just... They couldn't make it happen. Wow. Some guys suddenly had a lot of libido and they sort of brought that to their girlfriends or their wives and their girlfriends and wives were like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. You know, go back to whatever you were doing. This is you know, too intense. Um, yeah, Comcast is down. You're going to have to deal with it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, some guys, what was really interesting is that many guys started to actually remember past sexual experiences, often with their current partners. And they kind of started to rebuild like their erotic history or their erotic database. And they started to really enjoy sort of masturbating using their imaginations using just that, their imaginations or other forms of stimuli, sharing a fantasy with their partner or uh, reading some kind of erotica. Now, here's the other interesting thing. I also asked a lot of these guys who were in satisfying, happy relationships 
to try masturbating to thoughts of their current partner. Because, you know, ultimately, from an evolutionary perspective, from a mating perspective, from a courtship perspective, orgasm functions as a reward mechanism. It helps us to pursue sex. And so if you think about orgasm as a reward, so many men, when we're masturbating to internet porn, we're really just in pursuit of a reward from a porn star or from a person that we're not really intimate with. So when you actually start to imagine and you start to masturbate and have orgasms to thoughts of your partner, you're actually connecting the reward of orgasm to your partner and you're creating a kind of a neural feedback loop that I think actually can improve the quality of the relationship that you're in. So that was another sort of byproduct, but it's, so it was an interesting study. Now, the other thing I sometimes do with men who have developed idiosyncratic masturbatory styles is to ask them to masturbate with their non-dominant hand. So if you're a righty and you've been masturbating with all this pressure and friction, I'll ask you to spend a month masturbating with your left hand because you can't apply the same pressure and friction. So why does that work again? I'm not sure I understand the logic there. You know, it just dehabituates you to that kind of intense stimulation. And you get used to a, a now a newer kind of stimulation, a less intense form of stimulation, because with your left hand, you can't provide the same pressure and friction than you would could with your right hand. So then that helps you segue back into intercourse with your partner and to have fuller erections and orgasms with your partner. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, on to the show. So we can sort of wean ourselves, no pun intended, into a different way of, of masturbating. And then, of course... Because the other way around was like stop watching porn for 180 days or something like that. Yeah. And you don't necessarily need to do that, you said. You don't even need to stop watching porn. Listen, every, I think all of the problems that are associated with porn are really, for most guys, are pretty easy fixes. You know, I really, I do not buy into this whole idea that any guy who's watching too much porn is an addict, is compulsive, needs to start going to, uh, you know, uh, sex addict meetings and sex anonymous. I think we're really in a very alarmist, scary, anti-sex culture. Certainly for many men, porn can be a problem, as we've been discussing, but it's also a very easily fixable problem. That's great news for guys that think they have to give up their gnarly porn habit as well, because it, it's hard to cold turkey do anything, let alone like some guy's favorite pastime. I mean, it's like quitting smoking at that point if you've grown up with it, right? Exactly. I mean, I do think though there is a lot of value in letting your imagination wander. You know, everybody also has what we call core erotic themes. Like many of us are attracted to certain types of porn or certain types of role playing or certain types of fantasy based scenarios. And there's actually a lot to learn about ourselves from those fantasies. So it's a little like just sitting in front of the TV all day versus doing something that can really exercise your brain and your imagination. So while I would never ask guys to um, completely give up internet porn, I would say, hey, how about 25% of the time you sort of access your own erotic history, your own fantasies, your own erotic database, and, and work from there? I actually do a lot in my sex therapy practice uh, when I'm helping men with sex problems or relationship problems or low desire, I will often go back to uh, the fantasies and the themes that emerge from the fantasies. Okay, got it. Interesting. Let, let me give you like a little example. I was recently working with a guy. He has like what would be called a sleep fetish. 
like uh, Bill Cosby light, you know, like okay. he's not going to actually uh, use any uh, drugs or actually do anything non-consensual. But the porn that he's attracted to is all of uh, women asleep. And he has a girlfriend and he was very into this kind of role playing. And it was kind of becoming a problem in the relationship because she didn't want to have sex always pretending to be unconscious and to be asleep. So right. for him, this fantasy was starting to become problematic. So it's interesting. Through a few sessions, though, we really started to discover what this fantasy meant to him and why he had this fantasy. So like, here's a few interesting things that came up. One was that when he was really becoming sexual in sixth or seventh grade, he loved, you know, looking up women's skirts if he could, or getting a peek down a girl's blouse, looking at her bra. And, you know, it was like that, always at that, like, angle where he was just getting a peek of something. And part of what he realized he loved about the sleep fantasies was this idea of sort of almost recreating that thrill of a woman being unaware while he was sort of getting a peek at a part of her body that was just a, a little bit exposed. The other thing, and this is actually much more powerful, he remembered as um, the child of a single mother who worked very hard, he remembered always trying to wake his mother up, uh, especially on weekends, to play with him and do something with him. And she would always sleep into around noon, and he was always incredibly bored, and he always wanted to sort of wake up his mom and say, do something with me. Let's go out. Let's go have fun. He was an only child. He had this single mom. And so in a weird way, this fantasy and exploring this fantasy allowed him to also conjure up this memory and also kind of deal with the boredom and the isolation that he felt as a child, which was sort of a kind of a, a small trauma for him in some ways. So that's just one example of how our fantasies, you know, are really a key into our deeper psyche for and sure. can often help us unlock issues that we are dealing with in other aspects of our life. All this stuff just peaks out, right? It just seeps through the cracks. And sex is such an intimate thing that it's kind of, it, it sort of seems like it's linked directly to all of this past childhood experience, trauma, securities or insecurities or thrills, et cetera. I mean, maybe this is what Freud was hypothesizing, right? All these things cr creep out in sex, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that what did he say? The unconscious is, you know, the royal road into our fantasies and et cetera. And I, I don't remember the exact quote, actually. Uh, Freud also said that uh, clitoral orgasms were immature orgasms and that women needed to graduate from a clitoral orgasm to a vaginal orgasm in order to actually be psychologically well-adjusted women, which is total bullshit. Freud was totally oclitorate. It sounds, well, it also sounds like his childhood trauma was creeping through in his psychological diagnosis. Absolutely, Jordan. Um, the sleep fetish thing is interesting. One, I've never heard of that, but two, it's hard to imagine, you know, a guy being like, I really love it when she lays there and doesn't do anything. That's like the complete opposite of what every guy always says they want, right? And Yeah, but again, I've worked with a lot of guys who suffer from erectile disorder or premature ejaculation, so sex is also often an uh, embarrassing, um, yeah. dysfunctional act. So the idea of woman who's asleep who's just a sexual object that's not going to judge him, you know? No shame when she's just already asleep, right? Absolutely. So let's talk about the premature ejaculation thing, because there's a lot of mechanical male functions that you've touched on in your book, 
And I'm interested in sort of what causes those. Are they all psychological? How can we start to fix those? I mean, that's a huge, big, tall order. I don't expect you to solve all those problems in the next few minutes. But can you start on those? Because guys are getting more and more of these from wherever. And there's guys listening right now who are like, I have this thing I haven't told anyone about, and it's going to ruin my life. And they're afraid to get in relationships because they might have to have sex. And if they do, it might not be great. And then suddenly everyone's going to find out that they're a bad person. Absolutely. When I suffered from premature ejaculation, it was horrible. I mean, sex was embarrassing. As much as I wanted it, I knew I couldn't really satisfy a woman. And I kind of retreated from the world of dating and I became quite depressed, you know, and, and I share these experiences because every time I do, dozens, sometimes hundreds of men will reach out to me and tell me that it helped to hear that from me because they're suffering in sort of silent desperation with the same thing. So you asked sort of what's it all about? And today in sexuality, we take what would be called a biopsychosocial model. And that means basically we're looking at psychological factors We're looking at social cultural factors, and uh, we're also looking at biological factors. So for example, erectile disorder, 50 years ago, if you went to a sex therapist to talk about your erectile desire, they would want to talk about your relationship with your mother and all of the anxieties you were uh, experiencing. Today, we know from a biopsychosocial perspective that most erectile disorder is organic in nature and biological in nature, and hence we're lucky enough to have Viagra for those men who are suffering from erectile disorder. With premature ejaculation, even today, people still kind of take the psychological approach. So um, he masturbated incorrectly when he was a kid, hence a premature ejaculator. Well, studies have shown that men who are premature ejaculators versus men who are not do nothing different. They don't masturbate differently. Their family backgrounds aren't necessarily different. They don't suffer from more anxiety unless it's related specifically to the disorder, but they are essentially the same. So you can't really look at psychological factors when looking at something like premature ejaculation. So attention has really turned to um, the neurobiological factors. And A, we now know that premature ejaculation could be a genetic trait that's an inheritable trait. Granted, most men don't talk to their dads about their histories of premature ejaculation, but if they did, we would probably find that premature ejaculation runs in the family. We also know that for men who suffer from premature ejaculation, they may have a different ratio of dopamine to serotonin, and so hence taking an SSRI like Paxil, Prozac, or Zoloft, You know, a lot of guys who go on SSRIs complain because it either reduces libido or it delays their ejaculation. But for a premature ejaculator, going on an SSRI and finding that their ejaculation then becomes somewhat delayed, that could be a blessing. And so again, that's all through altering brain chemistry. So I think what we're really finding is that premature ejaculation is both a function of brain chemistry and maybe a function of nerve sensitivity. And so the ways we're treating premature ejaculation today in the here and now are not really the way we did 10 years ago. Like if you talk to most guys who are suffering from premature ejaculation, they'll say, it really sucks. You know, I'm trying the uh, squeeze method. I'm trying the stop start method. And none of this is really working. And so what I do with men is I do ask them to continue to do those kinds of behavioral interventions that help them become a little more aware of their arousal cycle. 
but I will often suggest that they um, sometimes consider uh, a small dose of an antidepressant under a doctor's care. There's also a new product out there that I like a lot. I'm not officially associated with the company in any way. I just recommend this product. It's called Promescent, P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T. It's a topical lidocaine-based spray that you spray on the penis, but unlike other ointments and sprays, they have an FDA-approved absorption technology where the uh, spray absorbs a little more deeply into the membrane, and hence it works better for guys, and it does not in any way um, contaminate a woman's vulva or vagina. A lot of times what would happen with these sprays is a guy's penis would get numb, and then a woman would be like, why is my uh, vagina freezing up on Oh, that's awful. That's the opposite effect, right? Exactly. Like complete opposite effect. So, so with promescent, it absorbs really well, and so a guy can last significantly longer without his partner ever noticing. It's funny. Emily Morse gave me some of that stuff to check oh, yeah. out. She she gives me all kinds of stuff. That's cool. Lucky you. For penises, because she doesn't have one, as far as I know. And, and so... You know, I it's funny because I don't I don't have I don't have premature ejaculation or any issues with that. But I was like, I'll try this anyway. And uh, yeah. I would say if you don't have any problems with it, do not use this stuff because one, I think it's expensive. But yeah. two, you'll be exhausted and you'll be like, this thing's not gonna. I'm still going. And you think it sounds awesome now, but really, it's just a bummer. Okay. Well, I can tell you for a lot of guys, you know, so when you're looking at premature ejaculation, you're looking at something called the IELT, which is the intravaginal ejaculatory latency time. And that's literally the amount of time that a guy can last during intercourse. So for premature ejaculators, the clinical definition now in DSM-5 is having an IELT of less than a minute. So for the vast majority of premature ejaculators, They really can't sustain intercourse for up to 60 seconds, and some can't even make it to intercourse. So for those guys, a product like Promescent is a lifesaver. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. It's it's interesting that somebody studied that. That must have been an interesting uh, body of work. Um, <laughs> oh man! If you get into the studies that go into sex, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, I can just imagine all these college students being like, "You want us to what? And then what with the stopwatch?" Yeah, here's another one that I love that was done. All these studies are always done with college students, of course, because they're the most easily accessible. But I think it was like, how often does a guy think about sex, right? So Jordan, how often does a guy think about sex? I mean, it's hard to measure because I don't know. I have never counted how many times. And sometimes it's so low level, like you're you're just walking down the road and you're like, girl, and then you're like, oh, that wasn't sex, but it kind of was, because you're, you're not like, nice handbag, you know, you're, right. you're getting right. straight to the point, and it's all just, it's like a second, and you're back to your normal thing, like a channel, it's like having a channel on or a radio on while you're eating <laughs> dinner, you're not thinking about the radio, but it's still on. Absolutely. What's the cliche, that like a guy thinks of sex seven times a minute or something like that? Yeah, something like that, I mean, I've heard stuff like that. I forgot exactly what it is, but the cliche, if it's seven times a minute, I think it adds up to something like 8,000 times a day. That sounds about right. (laughs) That sounds right to you? Yeah, it's something like that. You're a younger man than me. So this study, they gave men and women like those little counters, you know, uh, where you like push a button every time you have a sexual thought and it counts off. And just to see how many times a day men had sex versus women. And this was college students. And, I, and believe it or not, the men 
only thought about sex, I think, 17 to 20 times a day, which actually seems low to me, especially for college students. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that seems pretty low. I mean, that that's like how many times they consciously thought about sex and actually had the presence of mind to put a tally mark in a little notebook somewhere, maybe. I guess so. You know, anytime they saw a cute woman and thought, you know, I'd like to see what she looks like naked. Yep. Click your clicker. They did that mm -hmm. 17 to 20 times in a day. Women actually did it about 10 times a day. Oh, okay. So it shows maybe men and women are even a little more similar than not when it comes. Although th there's a difference between t 10 and 20. That would be men thinking about sex about twice as much as women on average. That seems like not quite the spread I was thinking, you know, because you hear like women think about sex once every 10 days and men think about it once every 10 seconds. You know, you hear more of these like extreme sort of extreme spreads. Well, and you know, it's like sex begets sex and sex ruts begets sex ruts. And I find with, you know, so many couples or people who aren't having regular sex that they're just kind of in a sex rut and they're not, they're just not sexualized. They're not thinking about sex as much. So I often have a lot of couples, even young couples coming to me saying, you know, um, how often should we be having sex? And, and I like to tell couples, you know, a minimum of one time a week. And um, for some couples, that's not nearly enough. But believe it or not, for some people in long-term relationships, once a week is quite a bit. And, you know, I think at least having sex once a week with your partner kind of keeps you connected, keeps you in tune, keeps you sort of eroticized, keeps sex in the air. Now, back to the show. It can be tricky, right? Because us guys, when we're single, we're like porn all day, every day, right? Because why not? But we don't realize we're doing sort of a disservice to our thinking. And then when we get back into relationships, we kind of have to jump back into it and we find, oh, I screwed myself up a little bit with all this stuff, I think. Absolutely. I mean, low desire, like the cliche is, oh, she has a headache, she's not interested in sex. But can I tell you, in my practice, and I see a lot of low desire patients, a lot of low desire couples, men are coming in with complaints of low desire just as much as women. And so I think this idea that like men are this light switch, men are always, you know, into sex, you know, ring a bell, show a guy a little bit of skin, he's going to automatically want sex. I think it's reducing men to, it's simplifying men too much. And like I said, I see as many low desire males as I do women. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Now that's maybe a relief uh, for some of us, I guess. Uh, one thing you mentioned in your book is actually called the sex pyramid. And obviously that's too interesting for me to look over. Uh, it sounds like something from Abu Ghraib, but I'm guessing it's not. <laughs> no, you know, I kind of, created my sex pyramid sort of on the idea of the food pyramid. You know, I said that I believe that couples should have sex at least once a week. But of course, you don't want to be having the same kind of sex over and over again. And just as it was sort of like a food pyramid with different types of different groups of food that create sort of a nutritionally balanced meal and life and person, I kind of think that there are different types of sex that people should be indulging in. And so I kind of did my sex pyramid like the food pyramid. And on my pyramid, I don't prioritize these areas in any way. But one area would be um, lovemaking, which would be sex that's emotional and connecting and really feels makes you feel like you're really being held and validated by your partner. Another important group would be sort of just 
sex to relieve stress, sex for the sake of sex, whether a quickie with your partner that's just all about an orgasm or a self-induced orgasm. Another important group would be fantasy and thought-based orgasms, not just physiological-based orgasms. And so that means sharing fantasies with your partner, watching some porn with your partner, fantasizing with your partner, role-playing with your partner. And then I think, of course, there's also sex that really emphasizes uh, the sensual experiences, sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. And so sort of my sex pyramid kind of pulls together these different groups. And I actually wrote a book. It's on my, I have a website that's called goodinbed.com. And I created it, but it involves a lot of other sex experts and many different authors with eBooks and whatnot. And one of the books that I wrote was called 52 Weeks of Amazing Sex, which is sort of based on this idea of the um, sex pyramid and gives couples a weekly assignment that sort of pulls from and blends these different groups that make up the sex pyramid. Perfect. Wow. Yeah, I think it makes total sense to do that because otherwise, and we've all been there slash are there, you get kind of in this routine where it's like, go to the gym, come home, make dinner, have, you know, sex. And when you're young, you're like, let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And then like, not young, but the relationship is young. Eight months later, you're like, eh, same routine, same position. And then you're just like, I'm tired. And then you just say, screw it. I'm over it. You know, and then it's like a weekly thing or whatever. I totally understand this, this different sort of variety pack that you kind of need to do because when you start doing that and you start sharing back and forth, it, it seems like a virtuous cycle, right? You're sharing fantasies. So you get in the mood and you get in the mood for different stuff. When since you're in the mood for different stuff, you're doing different stuff. Since you're doing different stuff, you start thinking about it more. Since you're thinking about it more, you're sharing it more. And then you just keep, it goes in a cycle, right? Absolutely. And you know, you'd be astonished how many couples never share fantasies with each other. Maybe they just sort of say, oh, let's have, you know, make love or let's have missionary style sex or let's have anal sex, or I want a blowjob, you know, like they'll talk about the positions, or maybe they won't even talk about the positions. I'm always shocked how couples don't really share their fantasies with each other. They don't sit down and just share sexy fantasies. And I think that that is such an important part of arousal. I mean, when you look at sexual arousal, of course, it's physiological. I mean, you touch a penis enough, something's going to happen. You touch a vagina enough, hopefully something's going to happen. But You can also be walking down the street and see a sexy woman or have a sexy thought and and instantly get aroused. But if you're not bringing that mental arousal into the relationship, that's when a sex life really starts to go dead. When it just becomes about the physical scripts, there's no mental energy being invested into it. Excellent. All right. You know, you talk about in the book turning her off to turn her on. What does that mean? Because that's obviously counterintuitive. I mean, don't we just want to constantly yeah. be pushing that button? I mean, it's like it's like the rat getting a fix of cocaine, right? Like, we want to turn my girlfriend on, or the, turn the girl yeah. on, turn the girl on, turn the girl on. Why would I want to turn that down? That doesn't make any sense. Well, well turning a woman off is going back to what I originally said uh, when we were looking at the female brain and an fMRI scan. It was really that parts of the female brain need to deactivate in order to enjoy sex. And I think great sex is really about how do you balance this combination of novelty and familiarity? Because here's the thing, if it's just novelty, 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 more than likely a woman is not going to be able to deactivate her brain enough to have an orgasm. Now, here, let me give you an analogy. It's the analogy everybody always uses. 
when you learn to ride a bike or you're learning to drive a car, you really have to think for a while about how to drive that car. You really have to think about how to ride that bike. And you're thinking about every process. And then at a certain point, you don't have to think about it anymore. You just do it. And you can be driving 50 miles and you could say, oh my God, I can't believe I just drove 50 miles. I was just in my own imagination. I was thinking about work because you're no longer thinking about it from your prefrontal cortex. The neural pathways around how to drive a car have been sort of solidified. So they've sort of gone unconscious. You no longer have to think about them. Well, the same thing kind of applies to sex. The first time you have, you engage in a new position, whether it's missionary or woman on top or swinging from the chandeliers or standing up, more than likely that position is not going to be the position that consistently leads to orgasm. (laughs) It can be fun. It can be exciting, but it's not going to create an orgasm. So the thing that you have to do is have enough sex scripts, okay, enough different sort of types of sexual scripts that lead to orgasm that work for both of you that you're no longer thinking about how to have orgasms in those positions. Your brain can deactivate and it can just happen. Wait, can you explain that a little bit? I'm not even sure if I followed that, frankly. So it's sort of like, you know, studies show that women... um, don't always have orgasms the first few times they have sex with a guy. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do because a woman is thinking about how to have sex with a guy and wondering, you know, is this working for him? Uh, is this working for me? And again, that brain deactivation that's sort of crucial for a woman to really relax into the process of sort of accelerated arousal is not happening. Remember, a woman has to sort of go into kind of a a trance-like deactivated state to really experience the deep arousal that will consistently lead to an orgasm. So that's why it sometimes takes having sex a few times Ah. to develop the sex script where she's no longer thinking about it or wondering about it or speculating about it. It's just happening. It's gone from the prefrontal cortex, which is in the front of the brain, to a, to a deeper part of the brain where automatic functions happen. Ah, so that's why when I talk about like sort of developing these sex scripts and having novel sex, you kind of have to invest in kind of developing the routine and helping it get familiar so it can kind of get neurally encoded in a way that you don't have to consciously think about it. It's like having sex, it's the equivalent of being able to drive the car without having to think about driving the car. Ah, okay, so the autopilot mode. The autopilot mode. Right, and we want that? That's confusing. Well, you do want that because that's what's going to consistently lead to orgasms. Ah, because, okay, because we're not then sort of having that tension of what's going to happen next, et cetera, et cetera. It seems almost counterintuitive, though, because it seems like excitement and novelty do generate those. Well, so it's important to balance the two. So I think in the early stages of desire, in foreplay, when you're warming up, when you're getting aroused, I think that is the place to really widen the script, bring in the fantasy, bring in the role play, bring in the Fifty Shades of Grey, bring in the S&M gear, bring in the talk, do it all. Really, go, go wild with your imaginations. But then at a certain point, as arousal starts to accelerate, you need to be able to sort of transition into a sex script that you don't have to consciously think about. Excellent. Thanks so much for this. Now, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you 
deliver? Obviously, I'll link to the book and everything in the show notes, but is there a concept or principle that you want to teach before we, before we bounce? Um, the only thing that I would say is that I think when it comes to talking about sex, it's really important to be able to have a conversation about sex, uh, to be able to share what's on your mind, to be able to talk about what's working, what's not working, to be open to giving feedback and receiving feedback. But, you know, the conversations are often so fraught or we're so angry or we're, we're holding a grudge because we haven't had sex in two weeks or she doesn't like to go down on me or she doesn't let me go down on her. And we end up expressing it in very um, often negative, critical, antagonistic ways. And I just really wish that more couples would have sex talks with each other, but not only in a positive way, but that remember that sex Sex is fun, sex is sexy, and having a sex talk can also be sexy. So whenever somebody comes into my office and starts complaining about the sex that they're not having or complaining about the sex that they're having, I ask them to really come up with a fantasy of the kind of sex that they'd like to be having with their partner and then to really be able to communicate and express the fantasy to their partner because that's hot, that's sexy. That's arousing. That's where talking about sex leads to having sex. Great. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been really awesome. And a lot of people out there appreciate you addressing this topic so candidly, including myself. Oh. Hey, Jordan. Thank you for helping me uh, talking to me and helping me reach your audience. I appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. This was a fun one. Honestly, this stuff is always fun. I should definitely talk more about sex. What can I say? It's interesting, it's fun, and it definitely solves some of these problems that a lot of us guys are afraid to ask, so I hope you guys enjoyed this. Of course, Dr. Ian Kerner's book will be linked up in the show notes, goodinbed.com or iankerner.com, and there's even more linked up in the show notes as well. Guys, this is a fanarchy. The show's run by you, guys and girls. I get a lot of email from women lately. Guys, you need to step your game up. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse, so if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com, and if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Ian on Twitter. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. Live program, bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, and by God, subscribe to the show already if you're not in iTunes or Stitcher, and of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, please, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Have a great week. Go out there, get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 